Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Time to talk environmental policy with uh, Cam Walker. We've been talking to Cam all year about all things environmental policy. Where did that get us, huh? Just kidding. It's been a huge year, especially with regards to climate. And uh, just last week, Federal Labor announced it would increase Australia's 2030 emissions target and apply to host the COP29 climate talks if they become the government after the next election. And Cam Walker is with us as he is once a month. And Cam, good morning. Hello. Good morning, Kalia. And, uh, yeah, uh, we did hear the Federal Labor announced last week that they, uh, well, they've put out a suite of policies on climate. The headline one was their proposed 43% emissions reduction target by 2030. That's up from 28%, which is the current government target, um, higher than the official projections. Interested in your thoughts um, about where the ALPs landed. Yeah, it is a hard one really to discuss in many ways because everything occurs in the context of the federal election. If we throw our minds back to the last federal election, the ALP were talking about climate and the coalition ran a really disturbing campaign, a fear campaign around climate action and I feel that that's impacted on the ALP this time round who want to talk about climate but also present a small target because they know if they go large on emission reduction targets, the coalition will attack them. So in, you know, saying that we're disappointed in the ALP position because it's simply not enough, um, they're saying 43% reduction by 2030. The Climate Council says we need at least 75% by 2030. But we need to remember that the federal government is talking about 26 to 28%, and that's been in place since Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister. So, um, you know, in saying, look, they should have gone further, I can also say I understand why they have kind of landed at where they, they have many of the political commentators described it as a reasonable balance. Um, and, you know, we have to look at this in the context of the culture war frame still dominates climate change and the coalition is primarily responsible for that. And so, you know, this this low target from the ALP, it's hard not to, or you have to, you know, kind of link it with what's going on in the broader debate. Yeah, so not a science-based target, but uh, a smarter political one, perhaps, and yes, lower than the last election and understandable given everything you just said. And I think, uh, you know, a recognition maybe that it's not just about the science but about bringing communities with you and I mean are you thinking that this might be the target for that cam that it will you know I mean a lot of straight away we heard the Prime Minister say you know mention certain um, coal communities for instance um, when when talking about the the labour target so this this 43% might be the one that also brings those communities with them do you think? Yeah, look, I hope so. And we just need to remember this target that they've put up is so not radical. The Business Council of Australia wants a 46 to 50% target. The ALP are committing to 43%. Like, this is so far from being a radical position. And it is shameful that Conservative politicians 
are going to run this fear campaign and say, oh, you know, your lamb roast will cost $100 and there'll be thousands of jobs lost in the coal sector. When you look at the policy, it talks about this massive investment in energy from renewables. It talks about rebuilding local manufacturing. It talks about upgrading the infrastructure we need to get, you know, the electricity from the point of production to the point of consumption. It's talking about community batteries. But as we know, the minute it goes into the political context and the minute the conservative press get on it, It just becomes about culture war. So I really hope that at this election, people don't get caught in that kind of smoke and mirrors frame that climate action will lead to job loss and high electricity bills. I think it's very interesting that the ALP have basically framed this as being a, you know, in inverted commas, reasonable position, which will bring down electricity prices for domestic consumers and drive a massive job boom. So they're looking at climate change through a jobs and economic development frame, which I really understand. And I really hope that people can really stare down the fear market that is already starting, but we'll get to a point of hysteria as we get closer to the election. Yeah, and I mean, you've mentioned a couple of the, the kind of other points in their policy. Um, I mean, how are they proposing to achieve the target that they have set for 2030? Um I think, you know, there's a genuine commitment there and I think they've been thinking very hard about how they will land it. We need to remember that the federal government commitment, 26-28%, is basically if everyone went at that level in the world, we'd be moving towards three degrees of warming. So we've had 1.1 degrees of warming and we can already see the change that's happening. So anyone that is going to kind of bring that line down, as this policy would, the 43%, it is to be welcomed, but we need to also understand that the business community is now ahead of the mainstream political parties. And certainly if you look at what the science demands, so that 75% target and, you know, certainly what the, the Greens are calling for, it's nowhere near sufficient to scale. But I do feel that, you know, that the transition is already happening and that's happening because the states and territories have stepped up. They all have their own targets now. So Victoria has emission reduction targets and, and renewable energy targets. All the other states do, the territories do, the federal government has been left behind and this is the year, well 2022 hopefully is the year where federal politics catches up with the rest of the country. And if they win the election, Cam, and look, you know, we're six months out or whatever from an election and we know now not to predict too much, um, too many days in advance um, in this world, but if they win, do you think there is scope for the targets that they've put forward, the ALP, to ratchet them up? Um, they meant they made sort of no mention of that and, and again, maybe it's understandable why not, but if they're going to vie to be the host of the climate negotiations in um, the coming years, we saw what happened with the UK, they just kept ramping up their own ambition. Do you think that that indicates they might do that too? Well, in many ways they will have to because if we throw our mind back to the conference of parties that happened in Glasgow, which was, you know, saw some really welcome forward movement but also basically locked us in as a global community to probably three degrees of warming, so it failed to deliver. Countries like Australia that refused to increase their targets for 2030 have been requested to come back towards the end of next year to what they call COP27, which will happen in Egypt, and they've been requested to ratchet up their 2030 uh, commitments around emission reduction. So regardless, we're going to have a federal election 
between now and the end of next year. So whoever is in power, be it ALP or, or coalition, will be required to front up in Egypt and say, well, here's our new targets. So there's going to be a huge amount of pressure and hopefully that pressure will translate into a ratcheting up of those commitments. At present, it's the 26 to 28% under the coalition, under the ALP, it's the 43% target. So hopefully it will be ratcheted up somewhere closer to what Climate Council is calling for, which is that 75%. Um, and I mean, it is the sort of coming into the holiday season and uh, you've been with us all year, which has been absolutely fantastic talking through the, the issues. I, I wonder, I mean, I'm going to go out bush. I, I know a lot of people will for the first time in a very long time. And I, I couldn't help but notice that the Victorian government's under pressure to further protect grasslands and properly fund monitoring of threatened and, threatened and endangered species. I mean, when we go out bush, Cam, will we sort of perceive that we haven't been managing our natural landscapes as well as we could? Or, you know, what is it that, that has come out recently with regards to the, the way that we're protecting our natural ecosystems? Yeah, so there's been this huge process. It was a, an, a parliamentary inquiry into ecosystem decline in Victoria, and the Greens pushed really hard to see this get up and running. Um, it's had you know, many hundreds of submissions. It's like a 700-page report. It's an epic snapshot of the state of the environment in Victoria, and it was released last week. And it highlights the fact that we've got so many critically endangered species that really are on the brink. So it delivered its report. Um, and obviously, if you you know kind of head out to the Dandenongs today or the Grampians, you won't see how that is playing out you know in real time. But what this report identified was this continuing ecosystem system decline across our state and the report uh, was delivered and now the government has six months to respond but in it were 74 recommendations and some of them are really fantastic but the bottom line of the whole process was our ecosystems are in decline some are in catastrophic decline such as the few remaining uh, indigenous grasslands that used to exist from the west of Melbourne all the way to the south Australian border now we are aware of the scale of the problem and here's what we need to do about it and so we've got these 74 recommendations and hopefully the state government will act on them in the new year and I mean, again, do you get a sense that there, there would be appetite for that? Because we've actually got an election year for Victoria's um, um, parliament as well. And, uh, you know, is there a sense that we will see action on the 74 recommendations? Look, I think there will on a lot of them. Of course, the, the committee went around the difficult stuff like, well, should we speed up the phase out of native forest logging, which at this point is uh, scheduled to end at the end of this decade. So there's big kind of gaps in it and uh, friends there joined with the National Parks Association and Environment Victoria to kind of do a bit of a, a list of things that we need to do, which is another $500 million of investment in threatened species. And if you look on the websites of any of those groups, you'll see it, that it's basically a long-term threatened species program, extra funding for biodiversity protection, a new land conservation revolving fund, so you buy land, you protect it, you on sell it, but you uh, make sure it's under a covenant, and strengthening the Wildlife Act. So there's still things that weren't in the report that we need to do, but in that report, those 74 recommendations, there's heaps of really good stuff that the government could get on with early in the new year, and a, a key one was to do a, a parallel inquiry into the health of our rivers and our marine environment, and then a whole lot of practical things that we, you know, we could do around threatened species, um, and hopefully the government will get on to them, the easier ones, at least in the new year. Yeah. 
And um, we're speaking with Cam Walker, uh, Campaigns Director over at Friends of the Earth. We speak to him once a month on this program talking uh, about all sorts of things. And one thing that we did speak about with you earlier in the year was around offshore wind cam and that we didn't have legislation in place to allow these kinds of developments to take place. Would would you put that down as a a win for this year that we will start to see offshore wind development in Australia? Absolutely. It's great that this legislation was delivered um, in the Senate and the Federal Parliament. It got through and I think it's really worth acknowledging the really excellent work of independent senators like Rex Patrick from South Australia. You know, he really kind of promoted this. This was a really interesting alliance between groups like Friends of the Earth and Maritime Union of Australia because the MUA can see offshore wind is going to bring a whole bunch of jobs for people currently employed in offshore oil and gas. So this is what transition looks like. Unfortunately, the federal government had been going slow on the legislation, so it was probably a year and a half later uh, than we had hoped for. But finally, we have it, which is awesome. And now we can get on with assessing offshore wind projects. There's at least three planned for Victoria, and there's one that is quite advanced in in its development in terms of thinking through what the impacts would be. And that's called the Star of the South, and that will be offshore from South Gippsland. So now it means we can start to develop this industry, and it means we can do a thorough assessment. So, you know, there's going to be marine impacts. There might be impacts on birds. There might be visual impacts. There's lots of things. There's lots of detail we need to go through very carefully. And some of these projects will be proposed in places where we won't be able to support them. But generally, this is going to be a fantastic industry that will radically reduce our emissions, that will offset and bring forward the closure date for some of our ageing coal-fired power stations, create same-sector jobs for people currently working in offshore oil and gas, and they'll be at a scale that will really start to impact how we produce electricity, particularly in places like Victoria. And, you know, I mean, we're almost out of time, but next year, as we've mentioned already, it, it is there is going to be a federal election and we're seeing uh, different movements uh, at the moment. One of them is the Voices of Movement, which we've spoken of quite a, a lot on this program, actually, and Helen Haynes was a, a recent guest as well. Do you think that they are going to trouble um, particularly Liberal MPs in different seats, Cam, um, uh, these independents that are running on climate as and, and integrity as their sort of two major platform issues? It's going to be so interesting to see how it plays out, but what we are very aware of, we have a deeply hostile federal government when it comes to climate action, and yet even the federal government of Scott Morrison was forced to adopt a net zero target by 2050 uh, in the build-up to the COP. There's these internal fractures between the moderate Liberals and the Conservative Liberals and the moderate Nationals and the, you know, the, the Barnaby Joyce's of the party. So clearly the coalition are feeling the pressure internally from their Liberal and National Party voting constituency who say, look, you know, climate change is real. It's impacting on our seats as much as anyone else and we need to act on it. So it will be very interesting to see whether that does translate as support for climate-friendly independence. I guess, you know, all of us are a bit nervous about making forecasts given how often in elections back to when Trump got elected, you know, the pundits are often wrong. But, you know, I do feel that there's continued growing interest in seeing our politicians reflect what the community wants to see in terms of climate action. Thanks, Cam. It's been a pleasure speaking with you all year. We're going to take a bit of a break over the summer, but hopefully you can um, be back with us on The Grapevine next year. 
Yes, thank you. I'll talk to you then. Have yeah. a great summer. Yeah, likewise. See you later. Ken Walker there uh, with Friends of the Earth Campaign's director, regular voice on this program. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. After an intense few weeks inside and outside of the state parliament, Victoria has passed its set of pandemic laws, which will mean this state will soon be the first in the country to have pandemic-specific legislation. And this follows a marathon debate in the upper house last week. Uh, It didn't come without pain, of course. Uh, The former Labor MP, Adam Sumnurak, returned to the parliament to vote against the bill, uh, and that required the government to re-enter negotiations with the crossbench. And there's been a lot of other noise around these laws too, some anger too. Uh, a contingent of protesters stationed themselves on the steps of Parliament for weeks. And to help us cut through uh, some of that and to bring us up to speed with what having pandemic laws means for our lives, we're joined uh, now by Dr Catherine Williams, Research Director at the Centre for Public Integrity. And uh, Catherine, it's really great to have you here. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much for having me, Kelly. No worries. And, I mean, can you step us through, just take us through why we needed new laws governing pandemics? Look, I suppose probably the principal reason for which um, the government decided to, to deal with this need for fit-for-purpose pandemic legislation was that um, it was made clear to them that there would not be continuing support for extensions of the state of emergency declarations that have been underlying the um, pandemic response until now. So without a guaranteed extension of that power, they were needing a new framework in in order to be able to continue to manage the pandemic. And why, um, in your view, has this been so controversial? Uh, Look, that's an interesting question, and I suppose there are a number of things to consider in trying to understand the reasons for that. I think the first thing to acknowledge, you know, if we're taking the protests that we've seen outside the Parliament and and in the Melbourne CBD to be a sign of the bill being controversial. Those protests, in my view, weren't really about the bill. Um, The protests, I think, were about vaccination mandates and probably general anger and frustration at what Victoria, but particularly metropolitan Melbourne, has endured over the past 20 months. And so when the prominent members of the Victorian community attacked the bill in a way that was probably less than constructive, it gave some some segments of the community something to nail their anger to, even though it wasn't really about that at all. So that's I think that's one element of it. But then if we look at some of the legitimate criticisms of the bill, it was really unfortunate that such a significant piece of legislation was released in the way that it was. And when it was released, its passage was anticipated to be very rapid, which made it, made it look like something of a rubber, rubber stamping process. The community can, you know, fairly expect that there should be real consultation about legislation of this kind and the timeframes involved didn't really permit that. And then if you turn to looking in detail at the legislation itself, 
there were initially some aspects of it that were troubling and, and disproportionate. So things like the inclusion of an aggravated offence, and that offence was going to be initially, I mean, ultimately the, the fine was hard before it was eliminated, this aggravated offence, but it was initially proposed to be punishable by a fine of more than $90,000 and two years imprisonment. And there was explicit exemption um, of sort of that part of the, the legislation from the Equal Opportunity Act. And that was really concerning to people. So I think that all these things taken together help explain why this particular bill um, engendered the response that it did. Yeah, and I mean, look, people, some people would have read, um, you know, news reports and, and heard what ended up being in the legislation when it was actually passed, but a lot of people would have heard bits and pieces. So it'd be really useful for you because you've been close to it, Catherine, just to take us through some of the the sort of headlines about what these new laws will involve when they come into being. Sure, that, that's great. So, look, the, the legislation as passed um, enables for the making of pandemic declarations and pandemic orders. The pandemic orders are what we currently refer to as public health directions. It's going to be the, the new name of those instruments is pandemic orders. And they will be able to be passed now, not by the Chief Health Officer, but by the, um, the Premier in the case of a declaration and the Minister in the case of orders. So the power to make those instruments has been taken away from an unelected bureaucrat uh, and given to elected representatives, which I think is, is appropriate. Uh, the legislation as passed, it really contains some important safeguards um, and these are things like the fact that the legislation after 18 months of its commencement is going to be subject to an independent statutory review. It's really important that that happens because we're still in a pandemic. We are still learning from what has happened to date and no doubt there will be very valuable evaluative studies emerging that we can learn from. So it's wonderful that there's going to be this review of the legislation in 18 months by an independent person um, and we'll be monitoring that process and watching it closely to make sure that it does involve a well-publicised transparent review process um, that looks carefully at the, the transparency, oversight and accountability mechanisms that this legislation provides for. Another really important um, scrutiny and oversight aspect of the new legislation is a cross-party joint parliamentary committee and it's named the Pandemic Declaration Accountability and Oversight Committee. So that committee is going to be playing a really important role. It's going to have oversight of all orders and instruments that are made under a pandemic declaration and it's going to have the power that they be to, to recommend that those instruments be disallowed, which means overruled, by an absolute majority of a joint sitting of the parliament. The committee is also going to have the power to call witnesses, request documents in the course of its investigations, and to report. The committee has, it is you know, really important when we're talking about the potential uh, role that this committee will be able to play, the committee is going to have an independent chair uh, and the government won't be able to control more than half the seats on the committee. So this is a really positive addition to the framework. There's going to be, uh, we're going to have to look at actually how this committee ends up 
performing its role, how the chair is appointed, and the, because really, um, who the chair is is going to be critically important in the ability of the committee to perform an independent role. So it will be interesting to watch how that happens over the next 18 months before the review process happens. And another, I mean, yeah, sorry, oh, sorry no, keep going because I, I think it's worth if you've got another point there to add to, to what actually passed in the House. Mm, the other, look, I think there's a couple, there's really some very brief points about what passed in the House, and that is the elimination of the explicit exemption from the Equal Opportunity Act. That's really positive. The protection of the right to uh, safe protest, which is, going, which is being set out in the guidelines, is really positive. And the other thing that's really important to acknowledge is the transformation of the previous detention review officers so who were lawyers, but they were subject to the direction of the minister and override by the chief health officer. They're now going to be statutory independent detention appeals officers. So that's really positive that we have now an independent, expedited kind of merits review process because you know, the forced attention of individuals might be necessary when we're dealing with a public health risk. But because the power is extraordinary, it's really important that we've got this fit-for-purpose avenue of appeal set up for people who are affected by uh, detention orders. And Dr uh, Catherine Williams is with us, Research Director at the Centre for Public Integrity. And Catherine, you and others were calling for some of these changes to the bills that were being discussed and, and scrutinised in, in the House. And is it right that the that um, Rod Barton, who's an MP in the east part of Melbourne, was you know part of those negotiations the cross-party um, parliamentary committee got up because of the negotiations with people such as Rod. Did 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 the the government ha- being forced pretty much to go and, and negotiate with more crossbenchers lead to the improvement of this these bills? Do you think? Look, in our view, that's right. So the requirement to, for the government to engage with an increasing number of members of the crossbench um, and some really constructive discussions there has led to these amendments. And it is important to acknowledge, too, that the first draft of the legislation was already an improvement on the existing scrutiny framework in the state. And I think that point's been lost a bit. So there were, had, were crossbenchers involved there who did really important work in fighting for improvements, and they were were improvements that were made in the initial first draft. And then, as a number of crossbenchers involved in the negotiations widened, we were fortunate to be able to get some more critically important amendments through. And, I mean, just a quick question, just curious from me, if it's called pandemic orders now, does that mean that these kinds of health orders um, can only apply if if a pandemic is, is declared in, in some way? That's a good question, and you're absolutely right. So they, these kind of instruments can only be made once the um, the Premier has made a pandemic declaration. So it all hinges on that. Otherwise, those powers cannot be used. Yeah, that's good to clear that up because I know it was a big deal, wasn't it, when um, the, we're waiting for the World Health Organisation and others to declare a pandemic, and, and it was, you know, not didn't seem like a very straightforward process with the, the COVID-19 one that we've got now. And I guess these kinds of legislation um, laws are in place now for future pandemics. Is, are there lessons here for other states? Uh, you know, this is the first time a state in Australia has such um, a, a group of, of laws for a pandemic. Will we see others do it? Because I think New South Wales sort of thought about it and, and then hasn't proceeded. 
No, I think that you're right. I think we will see other states needing to look at this. And I think when they do it, they will be looking at the approach taken in Victoria. It is what we have called a, a kind of standard setting piece of legislation and elements of it are, are really excellent. We think that they will be, or at least that they should be, adopted in other jurisdictions around Australia and also abroad. And do you think there would be improvements again on these laws that you would suggest? I mean, it sounds like some of the initial concerns that specific groups of people could be targeted under the laws and, and those sorts of things have largely been resolved, but um, you know, would you make further improvements given, given the chance? Yeah, look, well, look, we would if you give a bunch of public health academics the opportunity to people <laughs> with a bit of legislation like this. I'm sure everyone would jump at the opportunity. And but you know, in all seriousness, yes, there are some things that we think, um, hopefully, as part of this review process in 18 months' time, will be further refined. Um, be also, particularly because we are still learning, and, and we couldn't have envisioned 20 months ago where we would be now, and might be the case in another 18 months. So there will. Aside from the fact that we can already see some aspects of it, that it would be good to refine a bit more, I think that we'll be learning more over the next months. Yep, and we've got that committee in place to scrutinise it. Thank you so much. It's been really um, helpful having you on the program and uh, people can actually go and read some of your articles. I think you've been published in The Age and The Conversation as well if they want to get more detail about your thoughts around this. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. Thank no you. Worries. Um, Dr. Catherine Williams there, Research Director at the Centre for Public Integrity, um, running us through some of the uh, details of the laws that passed last week. They have been controversial. Um, it's been noisy and it sounds like there has been some improvements made to that, to what otherwise might have been in place as well. Triple. Ah. Always good to have Guy Rundle on Triple R. He's correspondent at large for Crikey, a former editor of Arena magazine and contributor to many other publications besides, both here and in the UK. He's written hundreds of articles over the past couple of decades and a curated section, a selection of these are now a new book called Between the Last Oasis and the Next Mirage, writing on Australia. And uh, good morning, Guy. Great to have you back on Triple R. Hi, Carly. Great to be back. And, um, I mean, what's it like for you revisiting these many articles and essays and reviews that you've been writing over the past couple of decades? Well, yeah, that's right. It's like they, they grill back right towards the, uh, the beginning of the 2000s, a couple of them. So, so it's like visiting another time and another place. You know, a lot of the uh, political debates seem ancient beyond ancient, uh, you know, in terms of, of the way that, that things have moved, I think, in terms of the, the bizarre, you know, twists and turns Australian politics has taken. Yeah, and I mean, my impression when reading it, I mean, there, there are some, you know, rising political figures in there, but I was thinking, gee, there is a graveyard of political careers documented yeah. in these articles. I mean, do you think the past couple of decades, I know, you know, you just said that it feels like a bygone era, but has it, have they been um, particularly brutal, do you think? Yeah, I think, I think what's happened is that at the end of Howard, we had Rudd and that looked like it would be a stable, you know, couple of terms of labour easily and then maybe a third wobbly term before the coalition took over again. And really what we got was Labor itself killing Rudd, 
setting up permanent instability within Labor and at the same time uh, um, across the aisle uh, you had the coalition taken over by not only its most extreme elements but its crazier extreme elements. So, so we'd all thought, as you can see from some of these articles way back, everybody's thinking whether you like him or loathe him that Tony Abbott is this, you know, warrior intellectual, you know, the next leader of, you know, the person we've got to watch and that sort of thing. And he turned out to be, you know, an idiot and a failure. And, and so you've got this churn that's going on completely. And, and at the same time as that's happening, that sort of politics is becoming more and more um, strategic, devoid of content, uh, separated from the concerns of most people. Yeah, and I mean, in amongst that that sort of period of churn, um, some Labor greats died. Bob Hawke, um, Gough Whitlam. Yeah. Um, I mean, how did how did that sort of play together? I mean, I, I do remember thinking, gee, you know, they don't make them like they used to a little bit with regards <laughs> to legacy. But I mean, I guess that's a sort of a, in some ways, a simplistic view. But do you think that the the, the death of those figures that were so transformative on, in the policy landscape for Australia? showed what we we weren't sort of getting in in federal politics oh yeah i think so i think i think probably what's happened is that the cold war um the post-war decades there's a real battle between a genuine left and a genuine right socialism versus capitalism a working class movement with intellectuals attached to it versus a, a bourgeoisie if you like uh middle class and and that was a real struggle. It was a real struggle about every aspect of our life and how we should live. And, you know, the left sort of really lost <laughs> um, in the late 80s. We really did lose uh, in the mid to late 80s across the world. And since then, it's really been, you know, uh, mainstream politics have been two sides of the same coin, you know, capitalism and its loyal opposition. And that's had two effects. The first is that it's sort of undermined the Labor Party as an alternative place of alternative ideas about how we should live. But it also means that the Liberal Party, anybody who's of the right side of politics, who's got a lot of talent, is really just going to go and make money. You know, they're not going to go into party politics. So you start to get the crazies and the oddballs and the mediocrities and that sort of thing. So that sort of tilts up on both sides. And that's why, you know, the Greens are a far more impressive party than either of the two major parties in terms of what they do in their representation. And also why you do get, you know, people who are simultaneously admirable and exasperating like, like Jackie Lambie. Yeah, who um, says it how it is, calls people girlfriend and <laughs> keeps it real. Um, yeah, she's a very interesting person. But I, I think, I mean, you are one of the few who seem to predict that the ALP or Federal Labor would lose the election in 2019. Yeah. Um, I mean, what were you seeing then that others weren't, Guy? Uh, I think there were two things. The first was just um, this, this wonkish sort of presentation where they were talking about these franking credits taxes and things like that and they were pointing out accurately that it was this you know these were rorts and boondoggles for the rich or the, the well-heeled and that sort of thing but they weren't saying anything about what they'd actually do with the money they were going to get in they had they did have detailed plans 
but they couldn't sell them as a vision. And I was out in the um, uh, in a bunch of regional marginal electorates in Victoria and New South Wales for most of the campaign, and I just found this this lack of um, inspiration. People not knowing what Labor really stood for, what it really wanted to do. Um, uh, feeling that Scott Morrison, feeling that Scott Morrison, it was very very postmodern. They thought Scott Morrison was a bloke who had a go, you know, as he was doing all these terrible TV sort of appearances, he was having a go. You've got to they have a go believe, to get a go. Yeah, they didn't believe, you know, that he was literally putting on a blue singlet and doing that or building a kid's cubby house. They knew it was crap. But the fact that he was willing to do that crap <laughs> was what made him the sort of bloke they could trust more than Bill Shorten going around in a blue suit looking like someone's boss talking at a lectern. And that was the other thing, you know, um, people started off not knowing who Bill Shorten was, and by the end of the campaign, they, they knew him and hated him. So, so it was all sort of unfolding beneath the sort of the polling, and, and it did seem to me that they wouldn't win. Yeah, and I mean, you, you, you write in a, in a couple of your articles or mention, you know, policies being part of a bigger argument is, is really vital. How do you read the run-up to this next election? We're, we're pretty much starting to campaign already. Do you think Labor will learn from that 2019 defeat? Well, Labor's decide. I mean, Labor, what Labor had, this is the problem. Labor had a lot of big things like renewables and stuff like that in the last election. But they weren't joined together. They weren't. They were all these grab bag, this and that and the other. And they weren't a common vision about saying, this is the country we have, this is the country we want, these are the things we want to keep, and that sort of thing. <clears throat> now, this time around, they're doing even less of that. They, they have even no huge policies, very modest sort of things, and they're just hoping that the coalition will stuff up and that it is has pissed enough people off in enough marginal electorates for them to squeeze back in. Now, if that works, it works. You know, you've got a Labor government then or a hung parliament with not much of an agenda and that sort of thing. But if it doesn't work, if Scott Morrison manages to crawl back into power, then Labor has presented absolutely no alternative. And it's presented no real alternative for the last 25 years apart from a few years when Rudd and, and a bit of Greg Gillard was, was doing their stuff. You know, that was about four or five years in the middle of what is really, you know, <laughs> the, you know between the oasis and the, the mirage. That, this, is, this is the problem. For anybody on the left, on the progressive side, we've really lost the era. You know, if, if Scott Morrison gets in uh, next year... Well, he's, he's almost set up for another term and another term. So we've really gone 30, 35 years that'll be without, without a substantial progressive uh, uh, period in government. And, you know, that's changed the country enormously and in a way lost the country. So <laughs> it's a cheery thing for Monday morning. Woohoo! Uh, but, I mean, it is interesting that you kind of state that and you develop that argument in many different pieces in, in, in different yeah. ways. What is the response you get from your, your, your peers but also the audience at Crikey Guy to that, um, well, your objective view here? 
I think, um, look, I mean, you know, you've got to remember these pieces are shuffled in with a, mm. a lot of other stuff in Crikey, global coverage and, you know, Taylor Swift reviews that I do and, and that sort of thing. So there's a mixture. But when they're brought together, I think um, people appreciate, I think, the, the, the readership of Crikey, some of them, a lot of them are labour-rusted on. They, they get a bit grousy with the continual labour critique. But a lot of other people, I think, appreciate the idea that something like Crikey should be utterly clear-eyed and unsparing about what... To just call it as we see it, not try and filter it out, not try and second-guess what the audience would like, which is the sort of thing you'd do if you're in a larger circulation paper. Just say what you absolutely really think. And, and that was the importance, I think, of, of getting out to those regional electorates which, you know, which, which a lot of the major outlets just aren't doing. They send people out to, to track the, the PM and the opposition leader on the bus, but they won't actually get out to those electorates and talk to people in any volume, and you get a, you get a completely different idea uh, of what Australia is and, and what people are thinking. And so, Guy, yeah, Guy Rundle's yeah. correspondent at large for Crikey, and I was going to ask you about that, about getting out on the campaign trail and, and telling it from... The, well, a more human perspective, not that politicians yeah. aren't human, um, but, you know, the whole thing that covers campaigns, I don't know many other places I can get the kind of colour when the politicians aren't there necessarily. Like you take us to yeah. Indi, the Indies of, of Indi, as you, as you call it, but you also take us to Bowen in this in, in this collection as well. Yeah. What, is, what is it that you get from hanging out in, in those places? I just, I mean, I was in the States and in the UK for, for a long time covering American elections and, and living in London and that sort of thing. And, and when I came back or when I was back, I really wanted to sort of, I, I just wanted to understand, you know, my own country. I mean, you know, we can all sort of get to the point where you suddenly realise, you know, you've barely left about four suburbs north of the Yarra for 10 years or something like that. Well, it's definitely and been about two years for most people. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so uh, exactly, yeah, quite literally. So, so just to really, you know, actually have conversations with people that were longer than a vox pop. You know, if you vox pop people, if you go up and stick a microphone in their face and get three lines, you'll really just get back what was on the news last night. That's the thing. If you talk to people longer about their lives, about what they do, about what the issues are around there and and that sort of thing, you start to you start to get an individuality emerging. Um, and you really only have to speak to about ten or twelve people in an area. And if you start to get the same or, or a couple of different but the group sort of ideas of what's wrong, what's needed, that sort of thing you can really start to get an idea of, of, of what people are thinking. As long as you make sure you're talking to a diverse group of people and, and different people, you can sort of start to see where the Venn diagrams overlap. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting at the moment in the election we're going into is how rapidly, you know, Australia is changing all over. I mean, we, you know, this whole... I, Dear that the, the right used to throw at people 10 years ago, you know, latte lefties and latte sippers. Well, you know, 
Who doesn't drink latte? <laughs> now, you know, you go to the smallest regional town and it's got a cafe with, you know, this or that. It's got the notices up about some improvisational dance group, that sort of thing. You know, LGBTQ notice, that sort of stuff. Australia is, is changing very rapidly in the sense that, that every sort of community is becoming uh, more diverse, more transformed, more reflective of, of itself. And, and you can see that in these new movements springing up, like the Voices Movement and that sort of thing, that don't want to be represented in regional areas by the National Party. They don't necessarily want to go to Labor. Um, or the Greens, they don't, they don't identify with those fully, but they don't, but they want something else. They want a different mixture. And a lot of that is about these changes. So, so it's incredibly interesting what's happening, really. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this, Next election will be interesting too, I, I hope. Um, and, I mean, we're speaking with your colleague, actually, Bernard Key, next week about his book uh, on Scott Morrison. And, I mean, yeah. look, much has been made of of the Prime Minister's sort of casual relationship with the truth, let's put it that way. Um, are, you, are we at the stage where truth matters less? I mean, you, are, you do get out and about. Do people still really find the truth important in politics, um, Guy? I think that's what we're going to find out uh, in this election. I mean, as Bernard points out, you know, all politicians lie, but Scott Morrison, you know, um, just can stand up and say that um, red is blue and blue is red. And he can do it, you know, with the ad man, the, the PR guy's straight face. He's, you know, but the, the problem, I think, with that is it does start to silt up, you know. People sort of can see that you, you know, you lied. You said this yesterday, you said this tomorrow. Can they trust you to actually deliver, even if they agree with you? But the other thing is, the other question is, are there two big political camps in Australia and one of those camps just goes, yeah, this is my guy and I want him to lie to the other people. I want him to lie to the, the waverers and the low-information voters and the confused so we can win again. So have we, have we become a more cynical nation um, in, in that respect, in which we're not sort of looking for truth in terms of our, um, uh, the way we did politics, which I think we were probably up to the Howard era. And I think the rock stars can really set in with the Howard era and the sort of culture wars that, that the Howard government introduced, I think. Before that, there was some attempt at, at shared, not shared, not common ground necessarily, but a debate on, on shared ground, you know, about commonly agreed upon facts. So, uh, mm. so yeah, so if Scott Morrison gets back in, then lying, <laughs> truth doesn't matter as much as it once did. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not the the first to sort of um, ask this, I guess, but you know, this idea that we're, that good policy is bad politics. Um, oh, look, maybe you know, where does that lead? I, I guess we'll we'll find out. But I, I, um, yeah. I mean, has the pandemic changed politics, and and will it change your approach to covering the next election? Um, do you think? I don't think it'll. I mean, I think because hopefully it's over, and you know, we're not going to get. Um, the Omega variant or something like that coming in next year, you know, which makes everybody's, you know, um, 
hands fall off or something like that. So hopefully we're over it and we're getting back to normal. I, but I think what's happened across the world is that there have been subtle changes in the way of, that society works and that we socialise and that sort of thing that, that we, we are very unaware of and not thinking about yet. We've become... The degree to which we have, have now resorted to teleconferencing, Zooming, and, and these sorts of things, and despatialized place, um, uh, that's, that sort of stuff, as a sort of default setting, um, is going to have real effects on how, how we think of ourselves as people, how we act as people, and especially... You know, on the teenagers, I think, who've gone through two years of this when they're absolutely, you know, formative. I mean, it's, you know, two years when you're, you're middle-aged is like a long afternoon, but two years for a teenager is, is like half a lifetime when you were changing and developing. So so we're going to see some um, strange, and strange effects, and we will have to be, it seems to me, we will have to have institutions that are far more attuned to the idea that society is not just a given. Social life is not just taken for granted. It's not just there. Uh, it has to be rebuilt and reconstructed when these catastrophes happen. And if we don't do that, we're going to get uh, a society which has become more isolated, atomized, people who want to connect but can't, and, and we'll get the the, um, the sort of psychological pathologies that arise from that. So just to add to the happy Monday morning vibe. <laughs> well, I should have asked you more. We're out of time, but I should have asked you more about some of the the, the, the kind of more humorous aspects and, and essays in here. But I, maybe I should just mention the... And, and ask about the the prelude that you write about your, your tracing of the Marco Polo um, swimming oh, right. pool game. That's a bit of fun. <laughs> well, there's a lot. Yes, yes. We. This is the thing, you know. Especially in the lead up to Christmas, you know, this book. This book is full of humour and makes an ideal gift <laughs> for that hard to buy for a relative. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the stuff I do in Crikey and the Crikey has given me the freedom to do is to write in an absolutely left field fashion. So this long essay was at the end of, you know, the American primaries, actually, when I was back in Australia as COVID had driven us all back from America. And it was, I'd been trying in, in California to trace the origins of the swimming pool game Marco Polo because it seemed to me that, uh, that it, it, it could only have originated in the 60s when swimming pools became big, probably in California, uh, and that sort of thing. And, you know, I did manage to find people who remembered it being introduced and having never heard it before and that sort of thing. And that, that you know, if that sounds weird to the listener, well, yes, it's a weird, it's a weird sort of essay. It's a, it's a way of trying to get back into, you know, what happened in the last 50 years, how we, how a sort of mass popular culture arose and generated a whole lot of effects um, and then fragmented and shattered uh, into multiple audiences and multiple subgroups. And that's where we are now, for better and for worse, you know, for worse and for better. So, yeah, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of that. And, I mean, if I wasn't allowed to write like that about 
that and Australian politics and everything else, you know, I'd die of boredom, I think. <laughs> and so would we. Um, thanks so much <laughs> and all the best with the book um, Between the Last Oasis and the Next Mirage. I liked it how you dropped in the title into your commentary as well. Perfect. Writing on Australia by Guy Rundle and it's out through Melbourne University Press Writing Time for Christmas. Um, thanks, Guy. It's great to have you on Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.